Well, have you noticed uh, to doubt today is kind of hip? Um, a very thoughtful chap that has been a uh, part of Christ Community's conversation for many years is Oxford professor uh, Alistair McGrath, who wrote a fab- fabulous book called Doubting. And here's what he says about our culture. Um, and I think this is exactly right. He says, we live in a culture that values doubt and distrusts faith. I think he's on to something because it seems rather fashionable to be a doubter. You know, if you're really smart, you doubt a lot. If you're not really smart, you're kind of gullible and believe a lot. That seems to be sort of the thread of our day. But whether we believe in Jesus or we do not, all of us live on a tightrope of time, walking on this tightrope of time, balancing doubt and faith. We all doubt and we all live by faith. It's the way the world works. All of us live by faith, everyday faith. Um, It is the currency of our day. That's how the world works. Now, what what I mean by that is that uh, we exercise faith every day, whether we like it or not. Uh, These days, I find myself on airplanes a lot. It's not a lot of fun. I don't love airplanes. You know, when I step, I go down the jetway, I step onto that plane There's a lot of thoughts that go through my mind. How about you? (laughs) You know, I'm like, I sure hope this pilot knows how to fly the plane or pilots. I mean, right? You want to look in there, make sure you're not drunk or something. You know, you kind of look, are you okay? Um, And the engineers who designed the plane, of course, you know, they must have known what they were doing, I hope. But the ones that really stand out to me are people, again, I never see, are the traffic controllers. Man, traffic controller is amazing. I mean... (laughs) They guide the plane through the whole, once you take off all the way to the land, then they hand you off some other part of the country to somebody else you've never seen before. So we all live by faith every day. And whether we fly a lot or not, every day we encounter faith, everyday faith. Moms or grandparents, if you drop your kiddos or grandkids off at the preschool or at school, you know, remember the first day our kids went to school? You know, it's like, oh my, I'm going to entrust my precious little kiddo to them. I might not know them well. You know, we trust our children to teachers and so forth. Another one is we take our car into a garage. I mean, that's the ultimate blind faith. I don't know if this mechanic knows what he's doing. I can't see. I want to look around the corner and see, are you sure you're doing what you're supposed to do? I mean, are you like that? I mean, nothing wrong with mechanics are good, but it's like, talk about faith. My nice car, I'm trusting my car to them let alone your bodies. I mean, think about physicians or healthcare professionals. That's important, isn't it? But talk about the ultimate step of faith. You know, when you're entrusting yourself, and especially anesthesiologists, when they put you to sleep, oh my goodness, that's faith. All kinds of faith. One of my favorites that I often cringe at is when I go to Wikipedia. I mean, it's the ultimate step of faith, isn't it? Right? I mean, Wikipedia, people can put anything on there and you hope they're true and hope they're right. And I mean, you hope the information is true, but that's Wikipedia. So what I want to suggest to all of us is however we fit on this tightrope of time on doubt and faith, all of us doubt and all of us live by faith. Faith is the currency of life. It's how the world works. So this morning's text uh, in the Gospel of John, which is truly marvelous, we are introduced to the difference between everyday faith and resurrection faith. Between everyday faith and resurrection faith. And resurrection faith, this wonderful gospel tells us, changes everything. So again, if you have your Bible open or on your electronic gizmos or your paper, I'd like you to enter into this marvelous text with me. 
Now, the writer is John, and John is Jesus' BFF, right? He's his best earthly friend. John uh, knew things, had more insight than any of the other disciples, and he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. It's a rather humble way to say, I was in tight with Jesus. This is what he says. And in this text, he gives us a remarkable story of one of his best friends, Thomas. And with literary flair of a beautiful master of rhetorician, he has us in this text look over the shoulder of Thomas and through his heart in this moment. And it's a transformation of resurrection faith. Now, in this text, let's set the context. As Pastor Nathan read, John 20 follows John 19. And when we end John chapter 19, it is what we think of today as Good Friday. But in the first century, all it was Black Friday. I mean, it was really black. The clouds of sin and sadness, of despair, hung over the cold Jerusalem air like a fog. Jesus, the hope of the world, had died. He was dead. He was really dead. And John wants us to know that as he's in the grave. We know that dead people stay dead, right? That's something we count on. But in John chapter 20... The first rays of hope emerge even before the dawn of the morning. And John is very specific, if you look at John 20, that it is still dark when Mary goes to the tomb of Jesus. Startled, she encounters the empty tomb, and she hustles back to the disciples, the other disciples. And the gospel writer Luke gives us more insight here and says, when she says, I have seen the Lord, the other disciples basically say, you've lost your marbles. They think she's lost her mind, and we would too, right? Because that's the only thing we can count on in life is not only that we die, but dead people stay dead. That's pretty basic. So we are ushered in under the inspiration of John's brilliant pen to this tension of confusion and fear and a mixture of a cocktail of emotions that are swirling in the text. All of a sudden, on this first Easter morning, Jesus appears to, we know, several people, but here in the evening of Easter, verses 19 through 23, Jesus shows up in dramatic fashion. He literally walks through the door, a locked door. That is surprising. And what we see here, John tells us, that the disciples, the followers of Jesus, are hunkered down in fear. They're freaking out. So in this context, John now zooms into his literary lens that was wide-angle to a narrow focus, verses 24 through 29. And as we walk through this text, as thoughtful listeners and readers, the trajectory of this story follows a threefold pattern. What we will notice is that John invites us to see Thomas's honest doubt. That's the first section of this text, honest doubt. And then the text pivots, the story pivots on the center, and that is Thomas's encounter with the resurrected Jesus. You have honest doubt, encounter with Jesus, a resurrected Jesus, and then you have this rich contrast of heartfelt belief. So this is how the text goes, if you're thinking through with me of the flow of the text and the message this morning. Honest doubt, resurrected Jesus, and then heartfelt faith. So let's press in first together on the first framing of the story in honest doubt in verses 24 through 25. Now notice, I want to read this again, because notice the emphasis that John gives us. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, 
called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Keep that in mind. So the other disciples said, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I am not going to believe. Text of the says, I will not believe. So can you relate to Thomas? Anybody here relate to Thomas as a kid? I was just the doubter extraordinaire. I would ask questions all the time, not just to satisfy my curiosity, but to be obnoxious. I was an obnoxious doubter. Anybody like that? My parents, you know, go to them, why is that now? Why is that? Or how do you really know that? And it drove them crazy. And my mom, who grew up in the Christian faith and knew this text, would always call me, Thomas, I named you well. Doubting Thomas. And I learned pretty in a while that this character in the New Testament, this disciple of Jesus, was called the doubter. And through the Christian tradition of 2,000 years, we often think of Thomas as the doubter. But can I challenge that this morning? I think Thomas gets a bad rap. And I'd like to explain why as we walk through this. The backstory is given to us, the hint of it, the keyhole in which we look through it is given to us in verse 24 of this text. John specifically says Thomas was not with the other disciples when Jesus appeared to them. That is what John has already described in verses 19 to 23, if you see your text. In other words, Thomas missed out on this appearance through locked doors. Now, where did Thomas go? She loves speculation. Like, all the other disciples are hunkered down in fear. It is Thomas that's out there. And we know from an earlier text that Thomas has a lot of courage around this whole discussion of Lazarus' resurrection. Thomas says, I'm willing to go die with you. So all the other disciples are freaking out. Thomas is out and about. Like, you know, where's Waldo? It's that moment. So why isn't he hunkered down with the rest of the disciples? John wants us, again, to see Thomas in a good light. Now, you may think, well, Tom, you're pulling a lot out of there. Let's go to the Gospel of Luke, because the Gospel of Luke gives us more historical texture in this moment. And if you have your Bible with you and you can scoop back, look with me real quickly. We're not going to read it. I want to summarize it. Luke 24, 36 through 39. It's a major section that Luke presses into this first visit through locked doors that Jesus had with his disciples. And he gives us more information. It wasn't just a quick in and quick out. It wasn't just a touch and go. Jesus spent a significant amount of time with his disciples the first time he went through locked doors to appear to them. Now, in Luke, what we see is that Jesus says the same words, same time, peace be to you, and then they are freaking out. They think he's a ghost. They think he's a spirit. So he says, here, here's my hands. See my hands? See the nail scars? See my feet? And if you look at Luke's text, the disciples are not buying it. The text explicitly says, we're not believing it. (laughs) They're, They're like, they're caught between belief and doubt. They're joyful, but they're not believing it yet. So Jesus, what does he do? He gives them more evidence. He says, everyone got something to eat around here. And they give him a broiled fish. And he chomps down on the fish. Disciples are seeing this as a resurrected bodily Jesus. They knew he was very dead, dead just a while ago. He was very, very alive. And they still aren't buying it. That's the implication of that text. So Jesus, what does he do in this text in Luke? Jesus gives them an extensive Bible study. He goes through the Old Testament and says, This is what it is. The Messiah was to be crucified, buried, and raised. Don't you see it? This is it. 
In other words, Jesus' disciples aren't buying it. They're having a hard time believing. Jesus has to pull out all the stops to get his grief-stricken disciples to believe. Where's Thomas during this? Thomas misses out on all of this. Thomas is not going to need to see Jesus eat fish or get an extensive Bible study, how this all fits together. All Thomas is going to need to see is a glimpse of the resurrected Jesus, and he's going to believe. Do you think Thomas gets a bad rap? Is it any wonder John highlights his dear friend Thomas as the one disciple who really believed and got it? Compared to the rest of the disciples, if we understand the whole gospel text, Thomas was not the doubter. Thomas was the believer. In John chapter 20, it's not Thomas' doubt that is highlighted. It is his resurrection faith that is showcased to the world. Let me press into this if you think that's a reach, because this is what this text teaches. What changed Thomas's everyday faith that he'd been with Jesus for three years to resurrection faith? It was his encounter with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. Now, press in with me, if you would, as we move to the second section of the story, and the resurrected Jesus is highlighted in verse 26. We know from John that it is the Easter morning, or we, we know it's, if you, if you look at this text, let me go back to verse 26. We know that this time, it is Sunday morning, a week later from Easter. A week has passed. Interesting to think what all happened during those t- that t- week. We know a few things from the Gospels. But this time, John is very specific. If you notice verse 26, eight days later, Thomas is now with the disciples. And you will notice John's literary connection between verse 19 and verse 26. They are almost identical. And this is a literary structure to make a thread of connection. They are almost identical, verse 19 and 26. Why? Why is that? What is John doing? Uh, are there any uh, Bill Murray fans here? Anybody? I mean, he's one of my favorites, okay? My favorite movie, apart from Napoleon Dynamite, I know that might make you want to listen to me, um, is What About Bob? All-time classic, right? I mean, it's just one of my favorites. The second one of Bill Murray is Groundhog Day. And I think we have a beautiful picture. I love this picture of Puxatoni Phil. Here's reporter Bill Murray. And one of the beautiful things of Groundhog Day uh, is, you know, he pushes his alarm, alarm comes on, and Groundhog Day just, he's in this time loop, right? Every day he wakes up, it's the same day over and again. It's a repetition of the same day. This is what John is doing with his literary pen. In verses 19 and 26, he says, it is like Groundhog Day again. Don't miss the nature of the literary structure here. It is a repetition. The thread of connection in the story is that Jesus is now appearing again. And notice, Thomas uh, is, uh, Jesus speaks to Thomas in verse 27. Look at this. Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it on my side. Again, we know from the story that Jesus had already heard Thomas's description of, of doubt in verses 24 to 26, even though Jesus wasn't physically there. 
So the text gives us a sense that Jesus is omniscient. We already see his deity. He knows exactly what Thomas has said to the disciples when he says, I'm not going to believe till I see. And he gives the exact words back to Thomas. Don't miss that. John's literary focus is not whether Thomas actually touched Jesus. Right? I mean, the text doesn't tell us that. And that's one of our great curiosities. Did Thomas sort of reach in and touch him? Like, what do you think? I could vote on it. But my sense is, my best sense is, the text suggests that no, Thomas does not touch him. Can't be sure of that. But it seems like the structure of the text says that. But John's literary focus is not whether Thomas actually touched Jesus to make sure it was true. John's literary focus is Jesus' words now to Thomas. And his words are this, do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, the grammatical structure of this text in the original text is important to grasp. Because what Jesus is doing, it's like a 9-11 urgency call to faith. And translating this, I'd love to expand it a little bit because Jesus is saying, it's time now for you, Thomas, to move from everyday faith when I was physically with you, when you could see me and touch me, to resurrection faith. So he says to Thomas, stop doubting. The idea is stop doubting for good who I am. And now embrace resurrection faith and keep believing every day from now on. That's the grammatical structure of this text. And at this moment in the mystery of God's providence, there is a new creation that occurs in this moment. Thomas's everyday faith is transformed to resurrection faith. His life is transformed in the midst of his astonished heart. And here you see heartfelt belief emerge in verses 28 to 29. Look at what Thomas answers and says to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus says to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not yet, who have not seen and yet have believed. For Thomas, a Jewish boy growing up since a kid in the synagogue, reading the Old Testament text of Deuteronomy, the Lord our God is one. For Thomas to make this statement of unqualified, undiminished deity, my Lord and my God, could only be said through resurrection faith. John will lay out his whole gospel to this point of a literary crescendo of Thomas's confession. What he began as Jesus, the eternal Logos, undiminished deity in chapter one, now reaches its crescendo in Thomas's words, and John places him in Thomas's words, not his own. I love that about John. Thomas's personal confession of resurrection faith becomes the grand crescendo of the gospel. Chapter 21 is the P.S. of John. Important P.S. on the back of the letter or the gospel. John wants us, the reader, to know this, that at this moment, Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead was the ultimate game changer in Thomas's life. Absolutely. We use the game changer language often for something that changes everything, right? How many of you guys are Chiefs fan this year? Chiefs fans, right? 4-0, pretty amazing. Hopefully they'll make it 5-0 today. Last week, I heard lots of commentators talk about last week's game against the Giants. And commentators often don't agree on a lot of things. But there was a common thread of last week's game. They said the game changer, remember Dexter McCluskey's Buster's return punt. That was the moment the game changed. 
that led the chiefs to victory over the giants. What John is doing in a literary sense is saying this is the game changer that changed everything. Because resurrection faith gives us a brand new life. It is a brand new way of seeing the world. I hope you have read and love Oxford C.S. Lewis. Yeah, amazing man who wrote much. And if you're a kid at heart or a kid, you love Chronicles of Narnia. Amazing stories. C.S. Lewis' story is very interesting because he embraced atheism for most of his life. And he came to faith in Christ because of the empty tomb and resurrection faith. And Lewis captures well what resurrection faith is and why it's a game changer for everything when he says this. He says, I believe in Christianity like I believe the sun is risen. Not because I see it, but by seeing it, I see everything else. That is exactly where Thomas is as he embraces resurrection faith. His whole world changes, how he sees the world. The resurrection is the game changer in the Christian faith in our life. Often have people say to me who are honest doubters, and if you're an honest doubter, I'm all for you. Honest doubters will often say to me, you know, if Jesus would appear to me physically like he did Thomas, I would believe too. And there are individuals around the world that have experienced that, by the way, through dreams and other encounters. But that's not the common door of faith, resurrection faith. And the foggy murkiness of our thinking is cleared up by Jesus' follow-up words to Thomas in verse 29. If there were ever misunderstood words, it is verse 29. Jesus says to Thomas, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. What is Jesus saying? There's a tendency, isn't there, to see Jesus sort of gently rebuking Thomas for his lack of faith. But is this what's going on? If we know Luke's backstory and the hints in this text, Thomas is actually the disciple that believes the most. He's the most believing of the bunch. If anyone should have been rebuked, it's the other disciples for their thick-headedness and cold-hearted doubt. Jesus is not rebuking Thomas at all. I don't think that's where this text goes. Rather than words of rebuke, they are eye-openers to the life-giving and life-changing nature of resurrection faith. Do you see this word blessed? This word blessed is very important because in the other Gospels, blessed is the word beatitudes. Beatitudes mean it's the long tradition of Greek philosophy and history is the good life. The blessed life is the good life, the good, true, and beautiful, the life we were designed to live, a life of flourishing, of goodness. That's what it means. So John adds blessed here to give us the picture of what is the really the good life. And Jesus tells us that the good life is experienced and seen through the eyes of resurrection faith. That's the blessed life. The one who embraces and sees life through resurrection faith. See, Thomas up to this point had seen only so much. But now resurrection faith caused him to see so much more. And that's the nature of resurrection faith. It's much greater vision than 2020. We as followers of Jesus 
see more of Jesus, see Jesus better than Thomas did. Why? Because we have the Holy Scriptures completed. We have the Holy Spirit given to each believer in every heart as a Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The helper who would come and give Jesus the glory, showcase Jesus to the world. We must not miss this. Resurrection faith moves us from everyday faith of physical eyesight to spiritual eyesight through resurrection faith. Notice Jesus in this text also, a very important connector, is three times he says, peace be with you. Literally, in the Aramaic or Hebrew, it's shalom. What is Jesus saying when he enters those locked doors and says one word, shalom? It is a warm greeting, but it captures the whole thread of the story of the Bible. That shalom is a picture of how God designed the world to be, how he created the world to be. Before sin and death entered the world, and now that Jesus has come, he is restoring that world. And one day, we will experience the new heavens and new earth, that his resurrection means the start of brand new creation of all reality. In other words, the resurrection was the first fruits, the appetizer of God's restorative program, and it's centered in the empty tomb. Remember in John chapter 19, y'all, his famous and very significant words, it is finished when Jesus gave up his spirit. Now you have the other flip side of the coin. It is finished, and Jesus says to Thomas, the new has begun. It's all new now. It's a new creation. Wow. This is the resurrection faith that Thomas experiences. It transforms everything about his life, how he sees the world, how he loves others, how he lives. See, we all live by faith, don't we? That's the nature of the world. But we all don't live by resurrection faith. And John wants us to press into that resurrection faith and begin to see it, touch it, feel it, and be transformed by it. So are you living everyday faith or resurrection faith? Resurrection faith has two foundational qualities to it. And that is, there's faith in Jesus and faith of Jesus. And I'd like to press into that a bit as we wrap up and reflect on how this text, once we begin to unpack it, speaks to our life here and now. Two questions I'd like to ask for all of us to reflect on. First, what does it mean to have faith in Jesus? And secondly, what does it mean to have the faith of Jesus? Both of them are important and in that order. What does it mean to have faith in Jesus? Faith in Jesus doesn't mean, friends, we don't have honest doubt. Our hearts cannot embrace what our minds reject. The Christian faith, wherever you are in your understanding of it, is more than reason, but it is not unreasonable. Historical evidence of Jesus' resurrection is super strong and compelling for the honest doubter. And if you're wrestling with honest doubt this morning, if you're younger, a student, if you're older, and you're wrestling with how can Christianity be true, I don't understand it, ask questions. Ask questions of Pastor Nathan, Pastor Chris, Pastor Patrick, any of our leaders. Ask questions. Honest doubt is often a pathway to true faith, to resurrection faith. But what is not is willful disbelief. When Thomas is confronted with truth, 
He, does, he turns from honest doubt to heartfelt faith. He pushes willful disbelief aside. What is willful disbelief? I think the best story of this is the psychiatrist who has a patient that comes to him and is convinced that he's dead. It's kind of a strange thing. Um, and so the psychiatrist tries to do everything he can to convince this guy he's really alive. He's right there. He's not dead. Finally, out of frustration, the psychiatrist takes a pin and pricks his finger and squeezes it, and out comes blood. And he says, let me tell you, he says, dead people don't bleed. To which the guy said, oh, what do you know? Dead people do believe. That's willful disbelief. That's what stops us from experiencing resurrection faith. Honest doubt doesn't. Willful disbelief does. And some of us think, well, if I just knew more, if I just had more facts then I could really believe in Jesus. But the irony of that, the blinding irony is that faith is what leads you to know more about Jesus, not the other way around. In other words, our mind cannot truly know what our heart will not believe. And the more we truly believe, the more we can truly know. Resurrection faith opens our eyes and minds and hearts to much greater knowledge. So have you placed your faith in Jesus? Have you stood before him in your journey of faith and said like Thomas, my Lord and my God, this is where John wants us to go. And John connects verses 30 and 31 with his great purpose statement of the Bible that you may know that Jesus is who he said he is, God in the flesh, the son of God, and that you might have life in his name. Do you notice how he connects faith to life? It opens a door, a resurrection faith to new life. Resurrection faith is not just about some truths we believe, but an entire new, new life we live every day. Resurrection faith is professed on Sunday and practiced in every dimension of life on Monday. And that's what the faith of Jesus is. What does it mean to have the faith of Jesus? Once you place your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, what does it mean to live this resurrection life as an apprentice of Jesus? It transforms everything about your life. When we place our faith in Jesus, we are saved. or We are rescued from the wages of sin and death. But we are also saved for something, a brand new life. And Jesus, in that great invitation text in Matthew 11, says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest is what God designed you to live life in the Garden of Eden. It's the life God designed for you. And he says, take my yoke and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is how we grow in the faith of Jesus when we are an apprentice with him. So what does resurrection faith look like in the yoke of Jesus as an apprentice? It changes everything. It changes how we see others, how we see the world. We have new glasses that only point to now but to the future. It's a progressive lens. I have these crazy progressive lenses. They're not progressive. They're regressive in my mind. But it helps me see both close and far. And the faith of Jesus helps me to see now and the future new heavens and earth that are on the march, that one day there'll be no more pain, no more suffering, that full new creation will find its zenith one day in the end of Revelation 21. Amen. It gives us new eyes. We see now and not yet. But it's also a new way of loving. Isn't it amazing that the Gospel of John, and it is a PS in its literary structure, John 21, which you're going to look at next week, which is an amazing text our campus is going to look at next week. Jesus has this encounter with Peter. 
I won't say a whole lot. You're going to just dive into it and relish it. But Jesus asked Peter the question. He asked all disciples, do you love me? Faith of Jesus transforms the ordering of what we love and how we love it. Faith of Jesus, the resurrected faith of Jesus, living in and through you and me in community, changes how we see the world, how we live in the world, and how we love others in a transforming way. And resurrection faith speaks into every nook and cranny of your life and mine. Your schoolwork, the work you do that's paid, the work you do that's not paid, your relationships with one another, art and beauty and all of life, resurrection faith transforms. The gospel speaks to every nook and cranny of your life. That's the faith of Jesus. Abraham Kuyper, a brilliant theologian, is also interesting, the prime minister of the Netherlands, was known for one quote he had written, and, and it's brilliant, but I want to add something to it. Is that okay? Abraham Kuyper said, there's not a square inch of the universe where Jesus does not cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. Let me add through this brilliant text of John, there's also another truth attached to that. And that is there's not a square inch of the universe that resurrection faith does not reach. So how do we grow in the faith of Jesus? Let me just, three little things to sort of tuck into your heart for your journey this week. How do we grow in the faith of Jesus? Assuming you have placed your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you are now living resurrection, new creation life. First, read and reread the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The Bible fuels our resurrection faith. Paul says in Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Jesus. If you want to grow in the faith of Jesus, Allow the Spirit of God to present to you Jesus and all his brilliance through the text of the Holy Scripture. Jesus speaks primarily through his word, the Bible, to us. Second, re-remember Jesus' scars, would you? Isn't that amazing in the story of John that Jesus, the Lamb of God, all the way through the Scriptures, where is the Lamb, starts in Genesis, where is the Lamb, where is the Lamb? John introduces the Lamb, the Lamb, the Lamb. Is this connecting theme. Isn't it amazing that the Lamb has scars? I wonder why Jesus' post-resurrection physical body and all that mystery has scars. Perhaps one of the reasons, and there are many, is that looking at Jesus' scars not only challenges our faith, but it remembers us to, and to encourage our faith no matter what you're facing, pain, suffering, loss, fear. It transforms your suffering. Resurrection faith gives hope in the midst of life's bleakest moments. And Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, 1 through 5. If you need a sort of shot in your faith arm, this week read Romans 5, 1 through 5 because Paul connects resurrection faith with joy in the midst of suffering and heartache. Third, look forward to what is ahead. Look forward to what is ahead. The resurrection is the first fruits. It's the appetizer. It's the taste of new creation that is breaking into the world. And one day, as history's on the march, Jesus is going to make all things new. And we are in this moment of already not yet. There's a future day when sin, death, and pain will be no more. And John looks forward to that day because of Jesus' resurrection. Thomas looks forward to that day. He died a martyr, tradition says, in India with his eyes on the future hope that was his. The resurrection is the ultimate game changer 
not only for Thomas, but for your life and mine. Have you placed your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Are you trusting in him? And are you experiencing the faith of Jesus in your everyday life? Will you live an impoverished life of everyday faith or a flourishing life of resurrection faith? That's where John has us in this text. Dr. Peter Berger, one of the finest sociologists of the world, he's still living. A brilliant man came to Christ's community a couple years ago for a conversation. I'll never forget the conversation with Dr. Berger. Someone asked him, who is a bit more hostile, and Dr. Berger professes to be a person of Christian faith. They said to him, you're a Christian. Why do you embrace that faith? And that's how they said it, that faith. Dr. Berger, in all his brilliance, responded just as gently as you could, he says, frankly, it's because something happened in Jerusalem over 2,000 years ago that changed the course of history radically. And it changed the human experience dramatically. To me, it's because there's an empty tomb and a resurrected Jesus. That's why I'm a Christian. That's resurrection faith. Have you grasped it? Have you embraced it? See, resurrection faith is not some blind leap of wishful thinking into the unknown or a a mystical plunge of otherness. It is a brand new life that is available to each one of us. Resurrection faith brings new life.